Dan Brown, and I'm here today again with another Lenses on Information Architecture. And today I get to talk to Karen Hoff. Karen, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Um, I know you've been doing uh, IA for a while, and um, I feel like, uh, I don't know if you've experienced this as well, but there's been sort of, in my experience, a little bit of a resurgence, a little bit more of greater interest in information architecture. Maybe that comes from the fact that people built products for a decade and didn't think too deeply about the underlying structure, and now that's coming back uh, to haunt them. Uh, so now we're getting to do maybe a lot more information architecture, and there's maybe a lot more interest in IA. So I'm curious, how do you draw people into the IA process? What is it? What are some of your favorite techniques or approaches for helping other people think constructively about designing structures? Well, you said the word process, right? So in an environment where there is a set process that includes stakeholders and their names are on things, that's a huge win. But the simplest thing to do to draw people in is to set the example of just being obnoxiously simple. I think people think naming things, creating controlled vocabularies, taxonomies, right? we use these fancy words, is hard. Like I'm, I'm the expert person. So like I should go in a corner and do it by myself. So setting the example of saying, mm, oh, so what you're saying is people need to pay for stuff, right? Like people use the word stuff in meetings. It's very helpful for drawing people in. So I try to think what's the absolute simplest way to say what you're saying or to say the problem or to name the thing. And it kind of just breaks that air of pretense, air of fanciness. And hopefully, usually it helps more, more voices speak up. I, I love that. And I feel like um, that's such a big part of information architecture is there's this, um, what, it's sort of like almost cognitive dissonance of on the one hand, it can be a very technical, um, very, very, complex and abstract endeavor, but at the end of the day, it's got to yield something that's simple and accessible for folks. Um, we've talked a lot about sort of card sorts. Uh, I've talked a lot about card sorts with other folks. Are there, are there techniques that you love um, to help with that process? Is there, is there maybe a set of questions that you like to ask to help people identify what's the simplest way for us to think about? these things? I certainly say a lot, how would you say that to a middle schooler? And it's not, it's no grand, no grand approach. It's just a question I ask in almost every meeting, it seems. It's really easy to say, um, well, what, well, what do we need out of the UPC? Oh, the normal stuff. Oh, okay, the normal stuff. What? Nobody knows what just happened. Right. How would you tell a middle schooler what you need out of UPC? Oh, well, now we can, now we can all admit that we don't know what that means <laughs> and explain it in, in, in its basics. So I, I feel like I should have a tool answer, but I don't. I, lo I love that framing though. I mean, I feel like it's, um, it's, very accessible for us, right? Even if 
we don't have middle schoolers in our lives, we're all aware of the experience of middle school, which is like just smart enough to be and knowledgeable enough to be dangerous and understand stuff that's taught to us, but still um, uh, inherently curious about the world in which we live and not maybe jaded or cynical like a teenager or a high schooler or something like that. So I really like that. And when you're talking to an 11 year old, you're not worried about offending them by explaining something they already know about your work, right? you know? Like YouTube or something, there's no million times more, but about your work, we all go to family reunions or my niece recently asked what I do and I gave her, you know, pretty long explanation. And then my husband did the trick on my own story. He said, she solves puzzles with no right answers. That's pretty good. It's fabulous. It's the best definition I've ever heard. Um, did you, what is it that resonates with you about that definition of information architecture? Why do you think that works so well? I think information architecture is scary because like you said, there's that dissonance between it being incredibly complicated and incredibly simple and you having to come up with an answer and you being very aware that there is no perfect one answer. There's also something about framing it as a puzzle, which is almost like it's almost a purely um, mental exercise, right? It's almost um, uh, something that actually, you know what? I'm going to say that differently. Like it's, we know it takes time to figure it out, right? It's not just something that we can look at, put into a computer and get an immediate right answer that it requires some cognitive effort on, on our Yes. Yeah. And hopefully, well, I mean, a lot of puzzles you do together. Nice. Right. That adds to the appeal. The worst is when you say, oh, do you mean A or B? And the person says, well, you're the expert. Like, no, we're trying to solve this together. What, what, do, you say? what, what do you say when, you, when they say, well, you're the expert? How do you, how do you, help them understand that their input is important. Yes. I think we've already said all the things, right? It's a team sport, there's no right answer. We can come up with like a, a durable framework that can give us the foundation. It's not like a word shakes out to put in a UI. There's still choices and there's still we're never going to be done. If we don't have group ownership of this thing, it's not going to be care and fed well. It's like, well, you know, we always talk about these things as living organisms, right? There's way too much of this make a point solution, put it on the shelf and leave it for 20 years going on in the world. And part of it being a living organism, we have to all care and feed it together. If you're not invested in how we got to this point, you're not going to be invested in ensuring it continues. Talk to me a little bit about um, how, in your experience, IA has changed 
over the course of your career. How does it, the practice of IA look different today than it did when you say first got started in this world? Well, I got started in this world about the moment Jesse James Garrett said I was dead at the IA summit. I remember that. Yes. So, so we were at a summit together. I wasn't there. Oh, you saw it after the fact. Yes. The next one was my first one. Oh, okay. Baltimore. Well, then we were definitely there together. If it's in Baltimore, I go. So. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you would. Yes. <laughs> my first IA summit was a good one. I don't remember the question. How has it changed since you first? Oh, thank you. Yes. So entered in this moment of, I, I got to information architecture course taught by Dan Klein first day. He said, just so you know, none of you will ever be information architects. <laughs> you know, I was sold. Like I, that spoke right to my personality. All right, I'm all in. <laughs> um, and of course he probably was just trying to get the course number down so he could have better conversations knowing him. But <laughs> I joined in this moment where the ability to survive was being questioned. Are we just, do we need to adapt to the world? The, the word UX is, do we need to divorce ourselves from our library science roots? Like what, what, what's best for the practice? What do we bring that's different? And I don't know if that conversation will ever really be over, but I feel like there's a new security in it, in, in it being okay to be a specialist. And part of that is because how many people are joining this industry? We had the Unicorn Institute push of being the specialist is dangerous. You should all be generalists. Um, we're going to have a lot of one-man shops. You better know how to do everything. And there's a place for that. And maybe I'm sure that wasn't their whole point. That's, 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 that's like, that was an era in my personal head. Right. Um, but now we have much bigger UX teams in most corporations and there's place there's places for information architects and that's even you know a title you can use in a job description now. Yeah. And that's beautiful. Um has uh that was great. That was great. I'm I'm uh, that makes me optimistic. <laughs> um so while we're here let's maybe take a new lens uh to IA or UX or design, whatever aspect you want to focus on and just ask the question, do you think there is one aspect of user experience or information architecture that you think needs to be examined more closely? Is there any underlying assumption or preconception that we have about IA or about uh, UX that we need to re-examine? Yeah, I have a, an aspect and a, a where answer. I want to okay. give you a few answers. The aspect is we never make enough pictures. It's not possible. And when we make them, they're not accessible enough, usually. 
the, the pictures often serve us as sense makers for our own puzzle solving. We're a close knit team puzzle solving. Well, actually this book bleeds right into my wear. I don't think we're kind enough internally, right? Clear is kind. And I think UX is, as a practice is very, very good at doing that externally. You know, whoever you are making products for, we're, we're caring for them. But our colleagues, I don't, I don't experience the same level of care. And I think it's deserved. Like as a consultant, you write an email, you don't ask four questions. You ask one or two and they need to be clear, right? But internally, when you're in an enterprise, you get an email and it's just like, and it's your, you have to like sit there and wade through it, figure out what they mean, answer. And that's not necessary. These are soft skills we can be using to be kind to each other. And that's information architecture. Writing a good email is structure. Making a persona that has wayfinding and information sent on it, it's information architecture. It shouldn't all, like it shouldn't, I shouldn't have to do the work to figure out what's most important. Is it his OS? Is it how he likes his coffee? Is it that he binds 90% of his product from our main competitor? Hmm, why are these all the same font? <laughs> Wait, <laughs> you know? Um, so the same level of care, and I'm not saying we should spend the same amount as we do on paying products, but just another pass of empathy <laughs> for our common, our, our, the people that are trying to row this boat with us so they can read it faster, so they don't have to do as much work, so they can take the main point away. Executive summaries aren't just for executives. They're for the person who did this whole project with you. Um, that was amazing. And uh, more pictures. I'm very guilty of not enough pictures, right? We all are. I love my little spreadsheets <laughs> or my, my, I love my spreadsheets or my really detailed flow diagrams, but there's, there's a picture like three levels above that, that is about being kind to my internal audience. And that, that deserves time on my plate to make, because that's, what's going to make the project a success. What is a picture that you've created that you are most proud of that you feel sort of exemplifies this kindness that you're talking about? I can think of story. I don't know if I'm most proud. I once made a service blueprint. It's maybe, it's probably 10 chapters to this thing. It was long. It's like end to end everything. And I took, took the time to take that step back and say, what are the storylines through this? What would I want someone to take away? And what I realized was all the data transfers were what was important. To get that end-to-end -end flow to happen, these are the five integrations we need and why. So I made, it was like the ugliest thing ever. Basically a spreadsheet, but like in picture form. Right. It had like the software pieces laid out and the pieces of data 
And then like, where's the system of record and who else needs to know about it? And one of the stakeholders said he was gonna print it out and keep it in his pocket. So the first time it made sense. <laughs> that is the exact punchline you want on that story. Yeah. Yeah, which is probably why it's so memorable. Uh, so when I say picture, I certainly don't mean pretty picture. I mean, what's the takeaway? We are visual, visual beings. How do we make something easier to take it away with us? Do you think something has, uh, let me ask this differently. I, I appreciate what you're saying, like um, this idea of kindness and empathy for the other members of our team and exemplifying that through the use of um, effective and accessible pictures. I mean, my whole first book was on diagramming um, and I don't do a lot of that these days. As you say, I mostly, you know, it's always like, okay, another day at work, or another spreadsheet. Um, it's just so many spreadsheets now for the kind of work that we do. Do you feel like something has changed uh, and that is why there's less attention to this kind of um, intra-team kindness, or has it always been like this or something else? I think there's so much pressure to go faster. Because can you even go to a meeting without the word faster being used? <laughs> so, Asking somebody to do something include, that involves slowing down feels counterintuitive, right? But clear communication doesn't slow anything down. Creating clear communication does. There's all these, all these core tensions in our work. I feel like that's a big one. Where to spend, spend the care and attention. Yeah. I wrote a blog post years ago on, uh, I think it was called the well-structured email. And what I didn't realize at the time, but now I, I do realize is a well-structured email is my love language. And I got, I got this beautiful well-structured email from a client. And I mean, it literally made my heart race with joy. And I was like, I really shouldn't have this kind of visceral reaction to a, a well-structured email, but I do, and I must do because it's, it's rare, right? It's not something you see very often. It's a beautiful and sad story. <laughs> the, the ballad of Dan Brown. Um, uh, at what point in your career, did you, did you start to become aware of this? Was there sort of a moment in your arc where you were like, we're just being mean to each other? So I had the, the great privilege of starting at the understanding group. So starting as a consultant in this career. And but before joining this field, I ran conferences. 
So that's also about really terse communication. But there was a lot of time spent, like particularly Dan Cooney would would help me. He I'd write at the email and then he'd look at it and we'd rewrite it together. Cause that's like the relationship is is so key when you're a consultant. You can't get a single anything without that main contact. <laughs> can't get an interview, you can't get access to a file, like you're dead in the water. Yeah. So starting from a place where those communications were precious, made it a, a rough wake up call when, when I went in house. Did you, so when you went in house, was it even more clear that people were not willing to spend the time doing that? Yeah. Interesting. Not, not, not everybody, right? Right, right. Sure. Not being like, wah, wah, wah. like people are busy. Right. And people didn't have my upbringing of, of sitting, sitting there, making sure it was as clear as humanly possible. Right. So I wonder if you might help me deconstruct a preconception that I have about information architecture. Uh, and I know I've been asking everyone to do this and I feel a little guilty asking you to do it because I feel like I'm sort of putting the labor on you that I should really do myself, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm just asking for help to do these things. Um, and um, I, I have kind of a bunch of preconceptions. I just sat down one day and I started making this list of assumptions that I had about IA. So I'm just gonna pick one randomly to now talk about with you. And that is that uh, a content audit is essential to doing information architecture. So I guess my question is, you know, if we're if we're sort of trying to re-examine every aspect of our practice, is it can we question this assumption? Can we say to ourselves, well, is that really true? Do I always need to do a content audit in order to do information architecture? Can you define content audit? Oh, well done, Karin. <laughs> I see a content audit as looking at an existing information space uh, and um, identifying, if not every last piece of content that's in there, then a reasonable representative sample of the content that's in there to understand the composition of that information space. Is that, is that, how did I do with that definition? <laughs> it was great. Thank you. So back to puzzles. I heard you say you have to know what the puzzle pieces are before you can start the puzzle. Right. Which I don't know how to not do that. But I don't think every information architecture problem involves content. I've spent a lot of time in the last few years deeper in, in the data models. So there's a lot of content pieces I don't care about um, in that audit, but I still have to have the as is moment. Probably throwing out all paragraphs though, in my, in my audit. 
Look at that copy. I don't need that. <laughs> give me a keyword. Yes. Um, give me a keyword in its context. Go. When you say uh, you've spent a lot more time more deeply in the data models, can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? What is what is an IA practice that doesn't involve content so much, but involves data models look like? When I say data model, I mean the typical, what do we say when we say, what do we mean when we say what we say? Like this cup, right? We're always saying like, when I say cup, I mean this metal thing, that's a sphere. And you're like, oh, that's not the cup I had in my mind, right? That's our work, regardless of what we're doing. Well, the data model, it's also, what are the required attributes attached to this cup? Every time I say cup at this company, I can, I can know it's gonna hold water. I can know it's gonna be on a metal. This is what we mean. What are the optional attributes? Oh, most people also like talk about the fact it should be pointed up. And what are the extensibility guidelines? If I wanna change this cup, how am I allowed to do so? I'm allowed to print stuff on it? Cool. Well, I'm only allowed to do it horizontally, not vertically. And who's allowed to extend? Is it just somebody on the developer workbench? Or is it also our customers? And if it's our customers, it's really just display value. So do we want that in the data model or not? Um, so it seems like you could not do IA without having that kind of understanding of the data model that that the kind of puzzle pieces, as you said, are uh, these different uh, three different kinds of attributes that you described. Did I get that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's still back to your assumption that's still doing a content audit. It's just different. Um, how do you, uh, what, I mean, I know it's probably different for everything, but maybe generally speaking, what is your approach for establishing or understanding that data model? What is it that, um, and I can learn, uh, you know, someone who's trying their hand at information architecture and needing to understand that they need to understand what all the puzzle pieces are in their particular domain. What can you tell them? How can you coach them to identify all of those puzzle pieces? So any, so typically we're assigned work that is interfaces, right? As UXers. So if you're in an interface and you've been asked to design something and you don't know how the pieces fit together, that's because someone hasn't done this work already. And that's how you fall down the rabbit hole. <laughs> you say, oh, I need to make my, my, myself once. Oh, I need to work on making a self-service configuration for integrations. Okay, what integrations? What are they doing? If I set up an integration, what else changes? Probably lots of stuff. Nobody can answer any of those questions. So you have to, that's what I mean by deeper in. I mean like deeper in the pace layers, right? Our UI is going to change more often than our data model. But so way too often we're asked to do magic design with no foundation. 
like, like we need that bedrock of shared understanding. And sometimes it is, oh, I know what a crayon is. Cool. Everyone agree this is a crayon? Great. Sometimes that's our shared understanding. And sometimes it's, oh my goodness, I'm now like writing with the crayon and it affects the paper, but the paper team is a different team and they don't know about the crayon. And is that still my job? <laughs> and that's when you're down deeper in the pace layers for me. Karen, I think we will leave it there. That was fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me.